Amen. Well, you can use this time to make your way to Colossians 1 if you haven't already. I'm going to make a few introductory comments. Justin has set us up well last week to understand the heart of the matter of which Paul is writing to the Colossian Christians. And I want to reiterate a few pertinent points and make a few introductory comments uh, before reading our text today. And so last week we reflected on how we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, of sin, of wretchedness, of idolatry, of hatred with, of God. And we've been delivered into the kingdom of God the Father's beloved Son. And it is in the Son that we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And as we looked last week, it is the project of Satan to obscure Christ. And so they... Uh, in Colossae, in Colossae, are uh, dealing with some strange teachings, right? Some strange teachings, probably a proto-Gnostic influence because there's this apparent affirmation of this uniqueness of Jesus, but not as him being fully God. Some were teaching a lifestyle of radical deprivation as a way of godliness. So if I deprive my th- myself of things in life, it's a way of godliness, Others were teaching the observance of the ceremonial law as revealed in the Old Testament as a means of appeasing spiritual forces and entering into this higher means of spiritual living. And so at the heart of the matter, Paul is giving a clear vision of the person and the work of Christ as the thing that will protect them from false teaching and off-base practices. It's only through Christ, his person and his work. It's on account of Christ alone that anyone will be reconciled to God or sanctified in this life and appear with him in glory. It is only Jesus, beloved. It's only Jesus that will gain us acceptance before God. And so after describing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for sinners... As the apostolic pattern goes, Paul then turns to emphasize what the Christian life looks like. And in all of this, Paul makes it clear that not only is it through union with Christ that we are reconciled to God, but it is union with Christ that we live the Christian life. And so all of that, I hope, brings us full circle to not only understand the context of Colossians, but why Paul is about to go all the way in regarding Christ, who he is, and what he has done. And so without further ado, I'm going to read the text for us. Listen to God's holy, perfect word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We praise God for his word. So this section of Colossians is known um, as one of the most Christological passages in the New Testament of the theology of Christ, the doctrine of Christ, but it's also known as a hymn of praise of who he is. And it has two symmetrical sections, 15 through 17, the pre-existent and exalted Christ before creation, the Son of God, before he put on flesh. And then the second part, 18b through 20, preeminent in the new creation. So we have creation and the new creation. And so this brings into view, this 15 through 20 brings into view two things, the eternal status of God the Son before creation, and number two, the preeminence of Christ in the new creation. Before all things, creation. Preeminent in all things, new creation. And so Paul pins this praise of the eternal Son of God in his full deity and sovereignty over creation and as the mediating and resurrected head of the church, as the firstborn from among the dead. The Son as creator, sustainer, and redeemer of creation. And today, we will aim to understand even more deeply what it means to be united to him by faith and looking at all of this. And so the plan uh, is to look over the text in two parts. Part one, before creation. And part two, preeminent in the new creation. And then end our time in a very long and hopefully edifying meditation. So part one, looking at verse 15, before creation. He is the image of the invisible God. As we saw in John 1, the last verse there that we read, verse 18, and also Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 6, no one has ever seen God. And so what Paul is talking about here, the image of the invisible God, Christ is that. He's talking about the pre-existent, pre-incarnate, eternal, begotten Son of God. So often when we start to think about Christ or even God the Son, immediately we have in mind redemption. Immediately we have the second Adam. And that's good. That's good that we do that. But the point of this description particularly is of the Christ, not particularly about redemptive history, not as the second Adam, but he is clarifying that the Son of God has always existed and that he is God. 1 Corinthians 15, 47, for example, the first Adam was from earth, a man of dust. The second Adam is from heaven. So this is referring to the eternal status of the pre-existent divine son of God. This is his status. Before he was ever man, he was always God. He is the logos we read from John 1, the word through whom, by whom God created the world. He is the essential word of God that we read from this morning. And I just want us to understand here, reiterating it several different ways, that we are discussing the pre-existent, 
divine glory of the Son by whom all things came into existence. This name, image of God, right, by analogy, it can be applied to humans, right, made in the image of God. But the full, pure sense of this phrase, this name, the image of God, belongs to the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. And before Christ made God visible in creation, God the Son was the image of the invisible God, always. That's a bit of a mind blow. I've spent a few days thinking about this, and my mind is still trying to catch up. He existed in the form of God, Philippians 2.6. Before becoming poor, 2 Corinthians 8.9, he was rich, John 17. He was clothed in glory before creation. He is the perfect wisdom, goodness, righteousness, and power of God, the Father by the Spirit. Bob Inc. on this name, image of God, has something really sweet to say. As Son and as Lagos, as the full image of God, he from all eternity sustained an utterly unique relation to the Father. And although as mediator, Christ is represented as being dependent on, subject to the Father, so that he as a servant sent to effect the work of the Father, obedient even to the point of death, and then one day delivering up his kingdom to the Father, these expressions, like the name, image of God, are never meant to detract from his essential unity with the Father. The Son of God is the image of God because he is God. And image and glory, right, correlate here. And they must because the only way that the Son of God could eternally image or reflect the Father and the Spirit is if he is also of the same glory. If he is to be the exact imprint, Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. If he is to be that, he has to be God. And so looking here, continuing on, 15, uh, the second half, the firstborn of all creation. What's not in view here is that Christ was created. Some of these comments that we've just said would indicate that he wasn't a creature of creation. But it's also true that he wasn't God the Father, God the Son, and then creation. He is one with the triune God. And the firstborn of all creation is, is, is a, a reference in some senses in the Old Testament when a father, his whole estate, the father's whole estate would go to his firstborn son. Everything that's mine would go to my firstborn son. Everything that's mine is his. And that's the insinuation. Because he is God, everything that is God's is Christ's. Specifically the eternal son of God and also the incarnate and then resurrected and ascended Christ. It's all his. And we know that to be true because of the next verse. For by him all things were created. In the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. And then 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
So it is him who created everything. It was created through him, for him, and by him. And not only this, when it, the reference to in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, it's kind of like a, a poetic uh, heaven is the invisible. It's the thrones. It's the dominions. Earth, the visible, the rulers, the authorities, every single thing, the upper, the lower, the heaven, the earth, thrones and dominions that we can't see, rulers and authorities that we know of, it all, every single thing came through, came into existence through the eternal Son of God. Now, of course, when we start thinking about this, as I'm prepping this, my mind is blown because you're thinking about other references where creation is given credit to by the Spirit of God or to Father God as he spoke into existence. And so when we're thinking about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in creation, it really starts to just, our gears kind of start grinding because we cannot compute. But it is true that all of creation is the work of God. Yet each person of the Trinity fulfills a role corresponding to his existence within the divine being. This is God. And I'm glad that the God who saved me is not one that I can put in a box and understand completely. He's magnificent, majestic, but he's revealed himself in this way. And Bavink says, the father works of himself through through the son in the spirit. The father works of himself through the son in the spirit. Another older, very, very uh, much older church father says this, and he's appealing to Ephesians 4, 6. In understanding God as three in one, he says this, from Ephesians 4, 6. That as the Father God is above all, the Son, excuse me, the, that as Father God is above us all, as Son he is through us all, and as Spirit he is in all, and that the Father creates and recreates all things through the Son in the Spirit. Look, all the works of God have one single author, God. But those works come into being through the cooperation of the three persons of the Godhead, in each of whom play a special role and a special task in that creation. All the works of God have a single author, and those works come into being through the cooperation of the three persons, each of, who, each of whom plays a special role and task. This is, this is mind-boggling stuff, I'm aware. And so God the Son is eternal before all creation. All things were created through him and for him, and all things are sustained in him and, to, and continue to exist in him. So why is Paul saying all this? Because the problem seems to be a denial of the deity of Christ in this proto-Gnostic teaching floating around Colossae. He may be uh, partially God or maybe temporarily God, but he is not the eternal God. 
of the universe. And Paul says, oh yes, he is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or anything. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. The Son of God who became Christ is the truly is 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 God he is truly God that's what Paul is saying and so it's going to become more apparent that Paul is confirming that Christ who brought reconciliation and peace by the blood of his of, of his cross is truly God and so this moves us into verse 18 through 20 <clears throat> Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Head of the church is described to us later in Colossians 2, verse 19, when he says that they're being taken away from something. And what are they being taken away from? From holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body grows with a growth that is from God. The entire bride of Christ, the church of the living God, is grown in Christ, who is the head of the church. But how is this true? How does that happen? Because he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning of the new creation because he is the firstborn from the dead. Christ Jesus, the incarnate, God the Son put on flesh conquered sin, conquered death, resurrected from the dead, and ascended. But resurrecting from the dead is what he's referencing, the firstborn from the dead. He resurrected never to die again. And, in, and this is the beginning of the new creation, the resurrection of Christ Jesus, where all things are promised to be made new because sin and death and evil have been defeated in the resurrected Christ, who is the firstborn from the dead. The covenant of works, the law that humans must fulfill to be with God. If you break that, you die forever. Christ Jesus died that death and resurrected, defeating it, and we are in him. So that makes him the beginning, the beginning of the new creation because he's the firstborn from the dead, never to die again. And in Christ, we now have a presence in the sight of God, not as those who deserve judgment, but those who deserve his love and his care and his glorious fellowship. Christ is the first fruits of the harvest who is the church. As Christ is, the church will be. He was the first to resurrect, and all of his people will be resurrected like him, imperishable at his coming. That in everything, the end of verse 18, that in everything, all of this, so that in everything, he might be preeminent. One theologian says, Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead 
confirms him to be the Lord of the universe, which was created by him, which he has always sustained, and which he has now redeemed. He is preeminent, firstborn from the dead, beginning of the new creation, and all of creation will be like him. His church will be like him. All things will be made new. All things in creation are through him and for him. And the same is true of the new creation. He's the alpha and omega of all things, and he's the author and perfecter of the new things, of the new creation, of our faith, and of all of eternity with him. He's the author, and he's the perfecter. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How? The fullness of God, number one, dwells in him by his nature. It's who he is. Every divine attribute of the Father and all of that fullness of God also dwells in the incarnate Jesus Christ who put on flesh, which we beautifully confess from our confession. He is truly God. So this proto-Gnostic um, teaching that's floating around, it would have argued, uh, is, it, you know, in just what I've read, some of these teachings would have argued there's a, a ranking system in terms of angelic power and maybe um, who, who's, who's better than who based upon the certain angelic or divine power they would have, and they would just include Jesus somewhere on that scale. Maybe he was part God or temporary God, not sure. It wasn't a partial or temporary dwelling. Verse 19, this is not partial. This is not temporary. This is full. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And when he took flesh, his divine nature did not change. It was not impacted one bit. His natures didn't mix. We confess this. And he wasn't half God and half man. We confessed 8.2 from our confession. Listen to 8.3 of Christ the Mediator. The Father was pleased to make all fullness dwell in him so that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he was thoroughly qualified to carry out the office of mediator and guarantor. He did not take his office upon himself, but was called to it by his Father, who put all power and all judgment in his hand and commanded him to carry it out. All of that, he was pleased to do all of that that we just heard read, so that, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God was pleased to dwell in the incarnate Son of God so that he could reconcile all things by his blood. He is Lord over the church, not only because he governs the universe, but because of what he has done for the church, which gives him the right to preside over it. And it pleased God to dwell in Jesus, the God-man, so that he could reconcile all things to himself, namely through the blood of his cross. And so there's this cause and effect between the Godhead in Christ and the reconciliation through Christ. Because he is God, 
he reconciled all things to himself. Because he is God and man, he reconciled all things to himself. And it is, pre <clears throat> it is precisely because, because he was God and man that salvation and reconciliation could be accomplished on our behalf. And after the fall, in our flesh, we are empty. We were made in the image of God, fellowshiped with him. Adam failed and we failed in him, and therefore we are empty, full of vanity. Nothing good dwells in us that we might please God. No merit. In us, we lack any merit. In us, we are empty. In Christ was the fullness. John 1.16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ so that he could be the second Adam and guarantee us all the benefits of a better covenant. And here's what I mean. If he were not 100% man and 100% God, then he could not have represented all of his church as the head of a better covenant, which would grant sinners like you and like me righteousness and forgiveness through union with Christ, with him, by grace, through faith. If he were not 100% man and 100% God, he could have not represented us or been perfect and die and resurrect so that we would receive righteousness and forgiveness through union with him, by grace, through faith, with the promise of a resurrection like his. He didn't come from the seed of man. He was not born of fallen Adam. He came in the image of God that was created in Adam so that he could represent humanity. Truly God and truly man, he incarnated through the Virgin Mary, and he was perfected through suffering. If he was not God, he could not have withstood the temptation and remained sinless. But he kept the law perfectly. He did not give into the serpent's temptation like Adam did. And he took dominion and he destroyed all evil. How? Because he did not stray to the left or to the right, but he stayed on the path of life. And then he was crucified for you and for me and resurrected, defeating all evil, defeating death, defeating the serpent. And all mankind in him might be counted righteous, perfect, with the hope of resurrection. He satisfied the righteousness and the wrath of God in the place of sinners by dying the death that you and I deserve. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, put on flesh, fully God, fully man, and he died. Jesus died, and he resurrected from the dead. That's how. That's how. So we read the London Baptist Confession on Christ the Mediator, 8.2. I just recently read 8.3. And then listen here to 8.4. It's a great chapter. 
nonetheless, or obviously. The Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office. To discharge it, he was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He also experienced the punishment that we deserve and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. This is God. And he was crucified and he died and he remained in a state of death. Yet his body did not decay. And on the third day, he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. In this body, he also ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of his father interceding. And he will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. And so um, as we kind of have finished our walk through to the text, I want to make a few more comments because there's a, a mixed bag of opinions in terms of reconciling all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And I think that the scripture supports that last phrase, that he will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. He will make all things right. Whether dead or alive, whether evil or not, all things will be made right in Christ Jesus, who is preeminent in everything. There's no greater misery than to be alienated from God. And there's no greater joy than to be connected to him as a child is to a father. And this joy only comes through the reconciling work of God the Son in Christ Jesus on our behalf. Amen. So now I want to move us. So we've kind of pulled out so much out of the text. It's kind of sitting in the air. Um, I want to have an extended meditation on all of this. And this all kind of stems from maybe a curiosity of the image of God in man and the, image, the eternal image of God, God the Son, and just all of redemption. I had questions about the correlation between the image of God in man and the eternal God, the Son, who is uh, the eternal image of God. And so here's the point. Here's the point before we get into it. The image of God created in man is a type which finds its fulfillment in the resurrected, ascended, soon-to-return God-man, Jesus Christ. The image of God created in man is a type which finds its fulfillment in the resurrected, ascended, soon-to-return God-man, Jesus Christ. And so stick with me, buckle up, and let's do this. So within God, there is perfect Trinitarian unity and love within the Father, within the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. There's perfect love and fellowship. This is what John Owen says. I'm going to read a few things from his Christologia. The Father loves and cannot but love. His own nature and essential image in him, the eternal Son. The Father loves, and he cannot but love his own nature and essential image in him, who is the eternal Son. So the eternal Son is the image, and he can't but love himself, who is also the Son. He goes on to say, No small part of the eternal blessedness of the Holy God consists in the mutual love of the Father and the Son by the Spirit. 
As he is the only begotten of the Father, he is the first, necessary, adequate, complete object of the whole love of the Father. Speaking of the Son by the Spirit. And this is how Proverbs 8.30 of Christ. This is why Christ says, I was his delight daily, rejoicing before him always. Do you see this picture of the love and the fellowship in God with himself? Again, John Owen goes on to say, it's just so edifying, I had to include it. For God is love, 1 John 4.8. And this is the fountain and the, and the prototype of all love, God. Let's answer that question. What is the fountain and the prototype? John Owen goes on to say, as being eternal and necessary, all other acts of love are in God, but animations from and effects of this love. As he does good because he is good, so he loves because he is love. He is love eternally and necessarily. In this love is of the Son. And all love in creation was introduced from this fountain to give a shadow and a resemblance of it. The love of the Father, of the Son, by the Spirit. This is the reason that the eternal Son is the image of God. What we just said, that's the reason that he is the image of God. Because he is the love and the delight of his Father by the Spirit. Because they are of the same glory, in fellowship, in love, in joy, in glory. In other words, it's deep, so I'm just going to try to keep repeating it in different ways. Jesus is the divine image of God through his perfect communal fellowship with the Father by the Spirit. He is the image of God because of the perfect communal fellowship with the Father by the Spirit. To kind of continue this thought, this is John 17. I'm going to read the first five verses. You can just listen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Listen to this. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, this perfect love and fellowship within the Godhead. The fellowship that the Son has in the face of the Father is one of complete joy and pleasure. And it is of the same glory because he is truly God. Christ is the pre-existing image of God because of his fellowship with God the Father and by implication the Spirit. And it has never not been this way. It has always been this way. Let's keep tracking along. God relates to himself in unconditional unity. 
But to Adam and Eve, he relates in a covenantal, voluntary communion that the image of God in them enables. So what would it be to be made in the image of God? It is to have fellowship with God. And God made humans in his image through a covenant of works. God made humans in his image and fellowshiped with them on the basis of a covenant. And that covenant was one of works. It was voluntary. He condescended to man and had a fellowship with them. And they had to be obedient. They were made perfect, but there was a prohibition, right? Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and to take dominion of Eden. That was the way they fellowshiped with God, not only in perfect communion, but also in obedience and showing their love. And they were created in righteousness and holy and freedom to obey or not obey. And so Adam being created in the image of God was modeled after the eternal son's image in fellowship, in perfect fellowship. So this image that's created in Adam and Eve, and by implication all humanity, models the fellowship that we just described that the son has with the father. It models it because it's one of fellowship. Just hang on with me here. Nonetheless, the image created in Adam and Eve was not the final product. It was not the final product. We know that, number one, because Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So really, it was the middle. Because Christ, the eternal image of God, is first and foremost, it's always been. And then the resurrected Christ is the beginning of the new creation. And what we have in the middle of that is man made in the image of God, but it was ruined in the fall. It was ruined in the fall. Because Adam, as a prophet and a priest and a king of humanity in the Garden of Eden, modeled the eternal son who has dominion of all creation through obedience in the covenant of works. And if he would have been obedient, if Adam would have been obedient, he could have inaugurated all of humanity into a state of glory by obeying the prohibition and by triumphing, by triumphing over the serpent. But he failed. He failed. And humanity and the entire cosmos fell into corruption and fellowship with God was no more because the image of God in humanity was ruined by sin. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What happened after the fall? And this is why I'm saying it's modeled after the fellowship that God has, the Son has with the Father. Because when they fail, what happens? They didn't fellowship with God anymore. They ran from Him, scared, afraid, naked, and ashamed. And they were no longer holy and pure, and therefore they couldn't be in the presence of a holy God. Banned from the tree of life, eternal joy and fellowship with God was no longer a possibility for humanity. It was done. 
Through mankind alone, no chance. Because we're all born in Adam, sinful. But God promised a Savior. From eternity past, the Father and the Son agreed that the Son would redeem His fallen, corrupted image bearers. In the new humanity, in the image of God, which would enjoy him forever, would find its yes and its amen in the resurrected Messiah, the head of the church. God promised a savior. And he wouldn't just give us another chance. He would finish redemption, which was planned before time ever began. What we lost in the first Adam, we gained so much more in our Savior. The second Adam, through the covenant of grace. Where all of these benefits come to us by gift of grace through faith. Because God is good. Who is this Savior? the eternal Son of God. He assumes the created image which was ruined in the fall. God loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son to put on in Himself the world by becoming human in time and in space. And in every way that Adam failed, in every way that you fail in Him, Jesus succeeded so that by faith in him all that is Christ's is yours it's ours and he was forsaken by his father in our place this eternal love of the father that we discussed the father forsook his son who stood in your place You deserve the Father's wrath. You deserve to be forsaken by God forever. And God the Son took on flesh and was in your place. And the Father turned his back on his only begotten Son, who is his image, so that he would never turn his back on his church. And the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, And Jesus rose bodily, never to die again. And he ascended back to his Father by the Spirit. And this is what this joy is like. Psalm 16, verse 11, is repeated by Peter, speaking of the the ascension of Jesus in Acts 2, 28. But this is Psalm 16, 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what Christ returned to. That fellowship that he had from all eternity with God the Father. The glory that he left, he returned back to that. As God and as man. As Christ. King Jesus goes up the hill of the Lord. And he eats of the tree of life. Because he's the only one who could ascend the hill of the Lord. And he ate of the tree of life for you and me. And in him, we have eternal life and fellowship with 
God. He does this as the firstborn from the dead. He is the first fruits of us who will be after him. We are the harvest. He is the first fruits. He is head of the church. He is preeminent over all things. And our growth comes from him who is our head. All who are in him have this fellowship that he now has with the Father at this moment. As he is. Colossians 3. When Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. As he is, we will be like him. This is what it means to be in Christ by faith. Everything that is his is ours. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Not one tear shed over sin. Not one good work after salvation keeps it, sustains it, or earned it. Nothing. It was given to you. And you now have life. You now have a new heart, a new mind created after Christ Jesus. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. Already, but not yet. And so as we just... Conclude our time together. At the return of Christ, he is going to make all things new. And evil will be finally judged and destroyed. And when we have that moment when Christ returns, we can't mess it up. We can't mess it up. It will be joyful fellowship in the glory of God forever, with no chance of us messing that up. This is the redemption that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned before time ever began, before creation ever formed. In this spiritual reality that we have by faith, so like I said, it will be sight. This is the point of history. This is the point of life. Whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, this is just the reality of it. This is the only reality that exists on planet Earth. This is it. God loves you. God loves us. And when Christ appears, we're going to be like him. I want to read this for us in conclusion. Until our king returns, may this be us. From Philippians 2, I'm going to start in chapter 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, as you have always obeyed, so now, only not in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to want his good pleasure. Let's pray.